You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Urban Shooter Podcast. This is episode 137, On The Move. Crossbreedholsters.com presents the Urban Shooter Podcast. Thank God for an expert. The weekly pro-gun variety show featuring the internationally known black man with a gun. Your friend and brother from a different mother. That's what I call a close encounter. Ken Blanchard. Love it. That is a star. You're going to love it. It's a classic. Hey, hey, welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast. This is the pro-gun variety show that entertains, educates, and enlightens. Yes, it has been a busy week for your friend and brother from different mother. I've been sick, still kind of suffering from a little bit of it. I've been traveling. I've been on the Armed American Radio. I've got my 10 minutes of fame. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. And still, the most famous Brooke man on the planet, according to the wife. But it's all good in this neighborhood. Before I get too far, let me know. Before I get too far, let me let you know that you can reach me toll-free anytime at 888-772-6262 whenever you feel like it. That's 888-772-6262. And you can leave me a message. Tell me that you love me. Please do. Give me a show idea. Tell me a joke. Provide something for the show that I can use on the air. Share a yo mama joke. Whatever. All right? Or you can send me an email through blackmanwithagun at gmail.com or ken at urbanshooterpodcast.com. Now, after John Wayne gives us our Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to get into some thoughts about shooting on the move. Listener actually called me in, John, I appreciate that, and said, hey, how about doing this? So I said, hey, why not? Shooting on the move, moving while shooting, and what's moving in my head. On the move. <clears throat> I got trainers Masad Ayub and Rob Pincus on the station today. I got calls to a boatload of people and organizations that haven't yet returned my phone calls, but they are all going to make this show something that makes you keep coming back. Thanks for that. It would be such a lonely world if I didn't have you. Shout out to my Facebook family. You know, I posed some questions on Facebook last week and got some really good responses. And actually found a long-lost cousin. She got on there and started answering some crazy stuff. Totally anti-gun and, you know, how people from New York City can do. But the good news is, nobody on that list, with all those 30-some responses, blasted her. They did try to get her to stop doing the capital, uh, capitalized letters, though, and give a little internet etiquette, but she didn't get it. Luckily, I pulled her to the side after it was all over and reconnected with her and told her, and her little cousin was also a black man with a gun. It's so cool. And that's another reason why I don't give everybody that kind of comes on to Facebook an okay. There's some crazy folks on there, you know? And I know crazy when I see it. It takes one to know one. Shoutouts continue to the brothers in Georgia and all those suffering from those rains and floods everywhere else. Special thanks to all those who hear me sing and still come back to listen to this podcast. <clears throat> Thanks again to those of you who shared my belief in the Creator and have prayed for me. I really, really appreciate that. I'm going to share some info about my church before the show ends, so if it's not your thing, I'll have to catch up to you next week. Now, it's getting colder, 
all over the country, and I may be putting up the old Harley for the season. I don't know. Let me know what's happening in your neighborhood. You know, I got my eye on a 71 El Camino muscle car, but I really don't have the money for it. But I can dream, right? Would you believe I actually thought about selling my bike? I've been riding motorcycles for 30 years. And I thought maybe I could just sell this bad boy and trade it on a nice car. Talked to the wife about it and she said, no, 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 don't sell your bike. It's you. Man, what a good wife. I think I'll keep her. Maybe one day I'll write a book about all the bad relationships I've had. Speaking of books, the ebook I wrote about my son and I is still in edit mode. I passed it on to a listener, and I think he and his wife must have jumped off a cliff or got stuck out in open water somewhere. But anyway, I'll get it out to you as soon as I make those little corrections myself. Also, I got a couple of hot new projects for the future. I'm going to create a members-only site and also host a party during the NRA annual meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina next May. It's going to be off the chain. Let me tell you that right now. Live band, comedians, the works. And I'm moving toward forming that small organization of cool, like-minded people. It doesn't have to be that big, but we're just going to be a cool group. The Urban Shooter Association. You'll be hearing a lot about that soon. All right. Where you at, JW? Let's do this thing. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, last week, I forgot to put up an interview that I had with Jerome from California. He's a frequent person on the forums on the Gun Rights Radio Network, and he's the calguns.net representative for the Urban Shooter Podcast. I want to let you hear from him about some stuff that just happened in California. All right, Jerome from California. Man, welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast. Tell me what's going on in California today. Hi, Ken. Yeah, I came home this morning at work last night, and I found out that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had actually thrown us under the bus, pretty much signed AB 962. Um, for those who um, don't know what AB 962 is, it's a uh, ammunition restriction bill. Um, they want us to um, do a face-to-face purchase of uh, handgun ammunition, and means you can buy it over the Internet or, um, or through a mail order. And they want to um, take your thumbprint. They want to take your personal information down every time you buy uh, ammunition from the stores. And uh, found out that uh, that's exactly what he did. He, uh, it's, it's amazing. You know, I guess being Republican doesn't really mean anything anymore, but he pretty much sold us out. Cow guns worked pretty hard at it too, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. Gene Hoffman and the other guys... Uh, Brandon and Wildhawker is his name on the forums there. He, uh, uh, they, they led the fight and they, uh, they rallied everybody and everybody did participate. Every forum member sent emails, faxes. Um, uh, we called so, so many times. Uh, the volume was so high that they actually had to add some more lines, but 
you know what? He didn't listen to us. He heard us. He didn't listen. Did you feel like that deal was made before you guys even showed up? Um, it's hard to say. You know, we wanted to say no, that maybe you know, otherwise we, we wouldn't really try. But we felt that uh, for a while we were thinking that like he might be trying to uh, get on the good side of the Democrats because they do control California Congress, and there are certain things that he wanted to see come out, like the uh, uh, trying to balance the California budget and trying to get the uh, the water deal done. Those are uh, big issues to him. And I'm kind of thinking that he, he gave up on AB 962 to, you know, be friends with the, with the Democrats in the California Congress. All right. What's Cal Gunn's next move? Uh, from what I heard, there might be some legal recourse that we can do. Um, but, you know, at this point, I want to be cautious because I'll be honest with you. I felt pretty confident that this wouldn't happen. AB nine six two being signed, and it did. Um, right now, we're, we're we're planning. They're planning on well, me too, because I am a member of Cal Guns. Um, we're planning to uh, do some legal recourse, possibly bringing up the. Uh, there are there's a there's a there's a federal law that actually preempts AB 962. Uh, it's something to do with common carriers. Uh, the, the federal uh, aviation, I forgot the, the whole the whole thing, but it's a, it's a law from 1994, and we can probably use that uh, to say that, uh, that AB 962 cannot be, cannot be uh, legal. I hear you. So you're from California originally, right? Yeah, I live out here in California, but no, I didn't grow up here. Uh came from the Philippines myself. I'm a, I'm a newcomer here. Well, I became a citizen back in the 90s. So, so this is this is more than just a, a humbug to you. This means something, right? What's that? This isn't just a humbug. This means something to you, right? It, it, it does. You know, I, I supposed to be American. You know, no, I wasn't born American. I chose to be American. And... um the United States Constitution means a lot to me. It's all part of being American, and it hurts when you see somebody trying to uh, trying to uh, tear up the Constitution in front of your face like that. And that's what pretty much what it is. Absolutely, Doc. Well, we're going to keep on fighting. You know that, right? Oh yeah, you know, we did have a short conversation earlier, but like, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's bummed me out. It's bummed a lot of California gun owners out. But, uh, you know, we're going to lick our wounds and uh, take a deep breath. And then uh, we're going to get up and, and, and uh, keep fighting to fight. We're still in there. We're not giving up. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. See, what happens in California will happen elsewhere, too, right? Um, I'm sorry. I didn't catch that. Can you repeat that, please, Ken? You, you know what happens in California will be tried somewhere else, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, nothing ever. If it. You don't have to be from California for this to affect you. If you're in the United States, no. it's going to come somewhere. Like somebody else mentioned, that the stuff that, that you know, the federal government or the U.S. Congress uh, tries to bring up as far as gun control is concerned, um, California is usually the, the testing ground. They, they see if it, if it floats here, they'll, they'll, they'll try to bring it up to uh, U.S. Congress, either the, uh, the Senate or the, uh, or the Assembly. Yeah. 
so all people have to pay attention to what goes on in California. Yes, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yes, that, that, and that's true. And that's true. Um, well, like I said earlier before, too, I got into uh, uh, gun rights advocacy being a, uh, after listening to, to your podcast, to uh, Mark's podcast, and the other podcasters on the Gun Rights Radio Network. And uh, I, I just felt that there, California's point of view was being wasn't being heard. Our voice was being wasn't being heard, and I was kind of getting tired of California's being the uh, bad example as far as gun rights are concerned. And it, 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 there are a lot of California gun gun owners who are trying. We uh, you know we're uh, we're not just sitting here taking it. We're actually giving it back to. Cool man, cool. I know that's right. Well, you got my support here in D.C. for much Thank as it's worth. Yeah, it means a lot. And uh, earlier, I did call you because I just needed somebody to talk to, and I appreciated you talking to me and taking my call, and you know, because that really helped me out. That kind of helped me out to uh, the rest of the day because I was really, really down this morning. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, man, I, I I offered it. I said, you know, if you want to call me, call a brother. That's that's what I'm here for, for real. I wasn't just making that making it up, you know. And, and now I know that for sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's yeah. uh, it's, it's good to uh, it's good to be able to just you know. I know it was just did it over the phone, but I, I know I just felt like you were tapping me in the shoulders, like yeah, it's going to be okay, and I felt a little bit better after that. We're brothers, right? Yes, we are. Salamat po. Salamat po. Hey, this is JD from California, one of Cal Guns Nets Warriors on the Urban Shooter Podcast. Thanks, man. All right, I'm going to plug my book and then we'll get right on to our interview with two of the greatest firearms instructors that I know. Black Man with a Gun by Ken Blanchard is a 148-page book with pictures showing the right way and wrong way to do things, different guns and techniques, and a great primer for new shooters, an icebreaker for the experienced shooter, and a tool for the activist. Black Man with a Gun is a book that easily explains and inspires with the humor of the most audacious African-American in support of the right to keep and bear arms, Ken Blanchard. Ken Blanchard is a former U.S. Marine, federal firearms instructor, private investigator, counter-terrorist, public speaker, and web personality. Ken has been featured in two documentaries, Fox News, the BBC, the Washington Business Journal, Washington Times, Wall Street Journal, and now with his new podcast, The Urban Shooter on iTunes. In the book, you'll find a letter to my sisters, buying a firearm, the racist roots of gun control, the NRA, your rights, the police, religion, and guns. Get your autographed copy today by visiting Black Man with a Gun or by calling 888-772-6262. Get your copy now. All right, right after I got the last uh, podcast up and out, Urban Shooter listener John called me with a show topic about shooting on the move or moving and shooting. I thought it was a great idea, but then I got all confused. You know, my hard drive needs to be refragged, so sometimes I kind of go around in circles. Shooting on the move, though, has a couple of different trains of thought for me. Shooting moving targets, multiple threats, and me personally moving out of a car and engaging in a threat. The moving target having a gun or an edge weapon or a blunt trauma piece. Moving from one place of cover to another and maybe engaging a threat on the way but then there's differently the competition shooting angle where the course is defined, the targets are static, 
and I'm the only moving part. Personally, I have never written a lesson plan or thought about how I would teach somebody to address one of these circumstances. I have shot while moving, I have shot a moving target, and I have engaged in static targets at an outdoor range and training. But I would be kind of the guy that followed the classroom instruction on this stuff and the one to give some insight in the break room. I survived some stuff. I didn't give much thought as to how I would do it technically correct, but instructor extraordinaire and host of Best Defense on the Outdoor Channel, Rob Pincus, is going to break down some theory for you in a few minutes. Another twist to it is the reality of that you need to keep both your eyes open and your peripheral vision will be real key to your survival with this thing. Now, it's a lot different than shooting at an indoor range. Your eyesight is critical in this case. You have to judge your distances, your destination, and get target acquisition really fast. You have to make sure you don't step into a hole, off a curb, or into a tree before you move. You have to be able to make corrections on the move and know your limitations. How fit are you, for example? And what do you do if a bad guy changes directions on you? All that kind of stuff I'd have to put into a class and make it more uh, more official, more effective, more real. For example, if you're inside a gathering and somebody comes at you with a broken bottle or a knife, that's a little bit different than if you were outside in a parking lot. A person that knows something about edge weapons can cover a distance of about 10 yards faster than you realize, so the rules are different. And I don't follow rules too well. I just want to let you know that right now. I survive. I will cheat. I will throw something at you. Or I might just run. I will shoot you before you get a clear sight picture of me though, however, and I've been known to hit people with moving vehicles. I will fight you with my last breath. But let me stop there before I tell on myself. Here's a man I respect and love as a brother. He is part of the Pro Arms podcast team, an author of many books, the latest being the Gun Digest Book of Concealed Carry. I interrupted his evening the other night, but got his wisdom about shooting on the move for the Urban Shooter Podcast family. Here comes Masad Ayu. I have on a live line with me now, author, instructor extraordinaire, Masad Ayub, one of the preeminent fighting handgun trainers in the world, Moss, and also a big part of Pro Arms Podcast of the Gun Rights Radio Network. Moss, welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast. Hey, it's good to be back, Ken. You guys are still doing a great job. Thanks, man. Man, one of my guys asked me, what do you know about shooting on the move? And I thought, I better get some more expertise than my little bit of stuff. What's the deal with shooting on the move? Well, basically, it's t- way tougher than st- shooting while you're standing still. And I'd have to say standing still and shooting a moving target is generally easier than moving and hitting a standing target. Uh, that said, there are times when it's necessary. And even for the person who just competes in action shooting sports, uh, USPSA and IDPA will always have stages where you have to shoot on the move. So it's a useful skill and often in the street can be a necessary one. All right. What's... What's some of the things you should think about before you actually try this? Well, the key thing is it's going to be whole body movement. You're going to have to give up uh, any idea of shooting from a ritualized, formalized stance. Uh, the upper body is probably going to be have to, have to, having to turret as the, the body's angle changes because of either different targets as you're moving. 
what I try to do, and I learned most of this from the late, great Ray Chapman, is to turn my body as much as I can in a shock absorber. Uh, if the legs are straight, every time we take a step, the body will bounce, and extended limbs, of course, will bounce proportionally more. So what I try to do is keep the feet about shoulder width apart. The key thing to remember is have the toes pointing in the direction where you want to move, which is not necessarily the direction where the target is. Uh, let's say I have to traverse the range from left to right, firing down range, which means I'll be shooting to my left. What I've got to do is consciously work on keeping my toes pointed to the right, because as my head and upper body turn to engage the target, if the lower body follows its natural inclination and starts to turn with it, one foot now will start to cross the other. The first thing that will go is balance, and real soon there's a good chance you're going to trip and literally go down. If you try to do the, the sideways crab step, the right leg goes, then the left leg follows. Right leg goes, left leg follows. It's going to be a jerky movement, and the gun is going to jerk with it. So what you have to do is essentially turn yourself into a gun turret with the, the pivot point being at the waist. Big thing is foot placement. Normally, Ken, we, if you just look at somebody's footprints in the snow, we tend to walk with our toes a few degrees outboard of center line. And what this tends to do is rock the upper body a little bit sideways. What you've got to do is keep not just the toes but the feet going straight in the direction where you want to go. The, what I tell my students is thank you wearing inline skates. Now, if you let your toes go outboard with inline skates, pretty soon your feet are going to stretch out and your feet will go wide and you'll fall on your butt. If you keep the inline skates straight, you stay rolling. And if you keep the feet moving straight as, as you're stepping in the same pattern as inline skates, Basically, the upper torso will stay centered instead of rocking left to right, and the shots will come more center. Uh, you want the knees flexed more than they usually would be uh, almost halfway into a crouch. And you want to drop your butt to the rear. That gives you each knee as a shock absorber, and the hips as a large shock absorber. Uh, and by the same token, if the arms are fully extended and locked, You've got long levers with the weight of the gun bouncing every time the foot hits the ground. If you can flex the elbows a little bit, keep dynamic tension to control the gun with a firm grip and a push forward with the gun hand and a reciprocal pull back with a support hand. The elbows tend to act like shock absorbers, and it also shortens the length of the arms, which means basically there's going to be less bounce still. How about... Um Sights and, and just your whole sight picture. How does that work when you're moving? It's going to depend entirely, just like if you're standing still, how close the target is and how big a target you have to hit. Uh, if the, the last match I shot this weekend was a police match, uh, the target was a B-27, and the, the mark there is a center X-ring that measures about two inches wide by three inches high. Uh, the shot shooting was up to 25 yards, so essentially, you're a quarter of a football field away trying to hit something smaller than a 3x5 card. And point shooting just ain't going to work for that. You're going to need a, a hard-focused front sight and the conventional sight picture. If I'm in an IDPA match and I'm moving very rapidly and the target is only six, seven paces away, I'm basically going to go up, come up, look over the top of the gun. And it's not point shooting per se, but it's crude aiming. 
And when I see the front sight in the middle of the 8-inch center circle I need to hit, I'm going to break the shot as fast as I can. It's still two-handed grip and everything? If, if at all possible, yeah. I know there are some people who advocate uh, one-handed shooting for, for shooting on the move. What I found is the only time that's really a good idea is if you're moving with your gun hand side toward the threat. Uh, let's say I'm right-handed, and instead of my previous hypothetical, I'm moving left to right. Now I'm moving right to left. Well, as the body turns, the my left arm trying to keep up as support arm is going to be the first one to bind. So what I do if I've got to shoot to my right side as I'm moving forward, let's say I'm moving uh, west and I have to shoot north, I'm going to just let the gun hand break free, level it on the target, and that will keep me from having to torque my hips off balance, slowing down my movement and breaking my balance. Mm. But I, with only one hand to control the gun, I will have to be more careful to maintain a firm grip and really good trigger control. It's a lot of working parts in there when you do that, huh? Well, as Chapman used to say, it's simple, it just isn't easy. Right on with that one. All right, man. Appreciate that. Hey, my best to you, brother. Head on out to the range, give it a try, and see how it works for you. And thank you, Ma, so much. Hey, thank you, and best best of wishes to you listeners. You're doing a great job for all of us, Ken. You're a pioneer in this whole podcasting gun thing. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Hey, my best to, the, to, to Big G. The Big G gives you your best back. <laughs> all right. Talk to you later. Doesn't he have like the coolest, lowest voice you ever heard? Okay, and now for the high-speed technical theory that can only be delivered by the man Michael Bain called Super Rob, Rob Pincus. Now, this was hijacked with his permission from a clip he sent me from a class he taught on this very subject. I asked him about it, and he says, hey, check this out, Ken, and uh, how the heck are you? Now, I have links to it and the article that he wrote in SWAT magazine where he elaborates further on this. You'll find that on episode 137 show notes of the Urban Shooter Podcast.com. Take it away, Rob. We've known for a long time that the shooting and moving that most people do on the square range or doing competition isn't congruent with the type of motion that people do when they're really scared. We try to, we try to take people's natural inclination to move when we, because we know that's going to happen. In the apps training, what do people do? People run. People try to create distance. People get away from, even if they're shooting while they're doing it, like you were talking about, that guy turned and shot somebody in the shin. That's, we know that people are going to do that. We're trying to, to kind of focus that, right? We're trying to focus that into meaningful movement. So we're trying to take people to rec- get, get people to recognize when they flinch, when they go into that reaction, we want them to not just move randomly, but actually move laterally, move offline, because that's the maximum efficient use of their motion while they're presenting the gun, while they're going from the holster, while they're getting the gun out of their purse or whatever they're doing. The idea being, I'm going to recognize, I'm going to have, the, I'm going to lower my center of gravity, that's a natural reaction, so that I can move, and I'm going to have the natural inclination to move. Fine. We're not going to, it's not even a good idea to fight against that natural inclination, but we do want to focus it. So again, we're taking the natural reaction, we're trying to, to focus it a little bit better into a, 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 or take it and make it a better response. Here's our reaction. Our response is going to be lateral movement as we get our firearm out if we need to shoot. Then we stop and shoot. The reason we've always said that we stop and shoot is because it's not worth the detrimental effect on our deviation control 
for the limited safety improvement that the movement gives us, right? I still feel that way very strongly, that if someone's shooting at us and we're going to return fire from a a two-handed position of extension, or if someone is greater than two arms reach from us and they're coming towards us and we're going to shoot from extension, they're coming towards us with a knife to choke us, to hit us with a stick, whatever, that we are going to be able to perform better and shoot better and affect that person's ability to hurt us faster with shooting while we're planted because the movement isn't going to stop the guy with the gun who's 10, 12, 15 feet away. That movement's not going to stop him from hurting us. Two things about the way we track motion uh, that were real interesting about some work they've done recently. One is that we don't actually, uh, when we track motion, we're not actually focusing on any one particular thing um, in terms of, you know, your center of mass or anything like that. We're, we're following the idea of the motion. We're tracking the idea of a thing, not an actual specific point. I think that's interesting. The other thing they're doing that is incredibly important, I think, is in trying to guess where something is moving. Based on the way the human eye tracks movement, the way the brain tracks movement, given the option of an end point or a starting direction and velocity, which do you think is better for establishing motion tracking? I can tell you one of two things. I can tell you the direction and velocity that something's going to move, or I can tell you where the thing's going to end up. Which of those two things will allow you to be able to track the motion better? The idea is that by knowing where it's going to end up, I have a complete picture in my mind, and my mind is actually moving with, or maybe even jumping ahead of that thing, because it knows where it's going. So I have, I've established a path. If I only know the, the initial direction and velocity, when am I going to get, assuming there's no changes in direction or velocity, when are my eyes going to get screwed up? When am I going to come off of that thing? When we only know direction and velocity, when it stops, we, we lose it. And I've been saying for how many years that we actually get double benefit from lateral movement because the person's going to make two corrections, right? The person's going to start to follow us, and then we're going to stop, and they're going to have to correct again. Well, this is, again, clinical research that backs up that theory that says, yes, the eyes do, when you're, when you're tracking something and all you have is emotion, and direct, emotion in a direction at a speed, your eyes don't follow nearly as well as they do if they know where you're going to stop. The idea being, if I run towards that door and somebody sees me running towards that door and, and their brain kind of puts that together, they're going to have a better chance of tracking me and hitting me and shooting me than if I just move here and stop because they didn't know where I was, they didn't know I was going to stop. That's when they're going to lose me. Now, empirically, we know that from moving targets. How many people have shot moving targets, crossers? How many people have shot moving targets, crossers that weren't on a runner, that were erratic? And you see a lot of people miss a lot of shots when people when stuff starting and stopping and moving it back. Is that similar to your experience? That's a tangent. Uh, getting back to the motion, the idea being we, we teach lateral motion stop and shoot for a couple of really good reasons. The number one really good reason is if you need to extend and shoot, it's the shooting that's going to solve the problem and get the shooting done. And you're going to shoot better if, you, if you're planted than if you're moving. 
The other reason is that people have been taught for years to do contrived different, you know, duck walks, happy walks, groucho walks, whatever, and, you know, turn their torso this way and turn their legs another way and, and you know, walk that way and shoot this way kind of stuff. That's not, that, that stuff looks good on a range. You know, the triangle drill uh, that we did that one school, you know, the idea that, that you're going to walk forward first, you know, into a corner and then you're going to walk backwards out and you're going to sidestep back this way, all while keeping your torso oriented on the target. That's that's a great range drill, except it's a great range drill for that drill. It's not, not really doing, no one's going to do that in the real world. It's not how people walk. It's not how people move, especially under that stress and fear of getting out of the way and trying to survive. So... Rather than choreograph stuff to a level that I know it's never going to play out, let's plant and shoot. Let's get the shooting done. All right? If we know we need to shoot, let's get the shooting done. So why is shooting in motion drill? Shooting in motion drill came about because, it, it, that, because of that one little piece of the puzzle, which was the explanation for the longest time. If you move... You lose more in terms of percentage likelihood of getting safe to the movement because of its effect on your ability to control deviation than you gain in safety by moving at the speeds most people move when they're doing shooting and moving. All right, so the, the clinical research now says I also lose by moving in a steady path towards a end point or in a steady direction at a constant velocity. So even if I'm moving fast and in theory gaining uh, protection from the movement based on speed, if it's consistent movement, if, it, if I'm not stopping, if it's not erratic, then I'm going to end up getting tracked anyway because the eyes are good at tracking things when they predict the end point, when they predict what's going to happen. It's only when you, you stop or you change direction that the eyes come off and the person's going to have to correct again. But we do talk about the idea of inside of two arms reach, we're going to move in most of the time. And two arms reach isn't specifically, you know, six feet or exactly two arms reach. It has to do with awareness. It has to do with situations. It has to do with our recognition of exactly what's going on, our own athleticism, how quick we are, how fast we are. You know, at some weird level, it's, it's you know, fast muscle fiber versus uh, slow muscle fiber stuff. We know ourselves, we have to learn, we have to develop our skills, unarmed, armed, our recognition, our awareness. Sometimes it's going to be better for us to move in. So we get to a gray area. We get to a point just outside of two arms reach, where we're too far to move in. If we move in, the guy's already going to have the knife out, and we're going to be walking into the blade. All right. If we go in, the guy's already going to be coming around with the stick, or we're going to be walking into the punch, or whatever else it is. If... We're outside of the area where it makes sense to go in. But the person has a contact weapon, all right? Their body, their hands, their headbutts, their knives, sticks, broken bottles, whatever. If the person has to reach us to hurt us, all right, this is that gray area. And this is why we have the shooting in motion drill. So I've got a guy over here at the end of the table, you know, eight, nine, ten feet away. He's pulling a knife out of his pocket. So by the time I'm aware of it, I see the motion. I see the arm coming up. I see the motion. By the time I'm aware of it, the knife's already coming out. I'm not going to be able to move in fast enough. If I've got a gun, then what I need to do, obviously, is I'll react, and then I'll recognize that I need to use my gun. The problem is, if he's already charging towards me with that knife, 
If I just do my lateral movement during presentation and stop, there is a certain likelihood that he will be able to reach me and either knock the gun out of my hand, slash my hand with his knife, stab me in the heart with a knife, whatever. It's that tool or drill concept, except now we're actually putting it into a much closer, much more common realistic defense scenario. So in this one case, or in this one type of case, this concept is that the benefit that I get from continuing my motion if I'm moving at a realistic high speed and actually turning away and moving, if I continue my motion, I am gaining a significant amount of safety. Because technically, the guy who's nine feet away from me with a knife or with big fists, that guy is not able to hurt me. Okay, if he's not going to throw it. Now, a guy with a gun at nine feet away, lateral movement, load him up. Shift, stop, shoot. Guy with a knife that has to close that distance and is charging at you or is indicating he's about to charge at you, the recognition we want to that stimulus is it makes sense to keep moving because he is 0% dangerous to me as long as he's outside of two arms reach. The minute he gets within two arms reach and I'm, I have an extended arm or he gets within one arms reach and my hands are in, he becomes 100% dangerous. That's when the knife can hurt me. That's when he can grab my throat. That's when he can punch me in the mouth. That's when he can hit me with a stick. So I gain so much. I gain infinite levels of safety by keeping him away from me. If you think about it, the way this is going to look, when this guy reaches into the pocket and grabs the knife, I see the knife coming out, and I'm just beyond my two arms reach, right? I'm not close enough to do something about it. If I recognize this and turn, come after, he comes after me. As he's coming after me, I'm going to keep turning going to become like a spiral or a circle. I'm going to try to get away. I'm going to keep this hand up, right? If I bump into something, great. This is one-handed shooting with rapid, fast, super fast movement. It's really moving to try to get away from a guy who's charging at you to stab you. It's not duck walking away. Really fast, dynamic motion to try to get away, all right? And it's going to end up looking like a circle. It's it's the the old physics, like the, the fifth grade physics relativity explanation, right? Uh, you're standing on the street, school bus goes by, kid has a tennis ball. He's throwing the ball up in the air. If you take away the kid and you take away the bus, and the bus is going 60 miles an hour, and it takes one second for the ball to go up and come back down into his hand, what does the motion of the ball look like to your eyes? It looks like a, a big arc, right? It goes. It starts going up over here. And the bus travels 86 feet in a second at 60 miles an hour. It comes back into his hand over here. In the school bus, the ball looks like this. It's going up and down relative to the kid because he's moving 60 miles an hour too. So to you guys, this looks like a debacle of chaos and fast movement. And it is. But to me, it looks like I'm staring at his chest through the gun the whole time with my gun at extension. So the relationship between my eyes, the gun, and the head, or the, the target is the same as it would be here, right? If he were just a a static piece of paper. I'm trying to keep that as much the same as possible by looking through the gun, even though my body's turned away. So it's that shooting in 360 degrees, rapid presentation from the holster, but it's realistic, fast movement. Now, we can do that all day long. We can simulate that force on force. We can do it at real speed. We can do all that stuff. The question becomes, how do I train it live fire? Because again, do it in context. If I'm doing it with airsoft, I'm going to fire nine rounds in a second and a half, and I'm going to have zero recoil. 
right? If I'm doing it with sim guns, I'm going to fire five rounds in a second and a half, and there's going to be almost no recoil. So what if, am I really getting a one-to-one? Am I learning to appreciate what my Glock 23, 40 caliber, you know, super loads are going to feel like under recoil and how hard it's going to be to control recoil when I don't have my weight behind the gun and all that stuff? Absolutely not. So I'm not going to get the proper respect for how difficult this is still going to be. So what's the drill? Drill is set up a target, get, you know, six, seven feet away from it, relatively close, but behaviorally you want to establish the recognition of it's outside of two arms reach. Imagine a situation with a buzzer. This is a shot timer. You guys have never seen me use a shot timer before. We'll use a shot timer on this one. We're going to time it so that what happens is when the buzzer goes off, the student has to both move across a line in one direction or the other and get two or three shots off into the, preferably into the high center chest area in what I've been using is two seconds or less. All right. Now, I find that to be a good starting place to get people to really have to shoot and move. In less than two seconds. In less than two seconds, yeah. Because if, if someone, uh, if you tell them three seconds, they don't really have, you know, they don't have to move that fast for what you're setting up, or you're going to put those lines so far out that by the time they're three seconds away, if they're two and a half seconds moving as fast as they can off that line, now they're at like 15, 20 feet. Well, if they're at 15, 20 feet, you can stop and shoot, right? So the idea is if, if at some point during that, if the guy who's coming after you stops, then you stop too. And he starts moving again, you start running again. You know, in theory, if he's going to get within two arms reach. Now, if he starts running and you can just shoot him and he's done, then great, you shoot him and he's done. So that's where the shooting emotion drill came from. That's what the shooting emotion drill is. I have people do it once in each direction. It's obviously a lot easier to do to the weak side than it is to the strong side, because to the strong side, you have to turn your body around, all the way around. At the end, it ends up looking the same. So the guy's coming around, and you end up in the same position after a few steps. All right? What you generally see here is that people, because the target doesn't turn, people don't turn as much. So it becomes more of a sidestep. Right? Because you're, you're forced with a static target to continue to address the target that doesn't chase you. So I've been putting the line out at about six to eight feet from either side. So six to eight, nine feet away, they have to get across that line and fire two to three rounds in two seconds or less. That's what we're trying to do. Shooting in motion drill. Very isolated situation, but I think a very plausible situation and one that's worth changing the program dramatically to add. I started doing it in April with APH classes, and then it was in uh, the first first class that was taught to do this in combat focus instructor development was May or June. Well, I hope you have a better understanding now of the shooting in motion drill, the concepts and the science and the empirical evidence that lies behind it, and the reason why we think it's so important to train this live fire as opposed to just in force-on-force or with airsoft with other non-one-to-one ratio recoiling firearms while moving rapidly away from a close-quarters threat. For more on the shooting in motion drill, check out the January 2009 issue of SWAT magazine, where I've written an article uh, accompanied by pictures explaining the shooting in motion drill and the concepts behind it. And certainly it'll be part of the personal defense video series at some point, included in one of the skills drills or upcoming more combat-focused shooting DVDs. Lastly, one other place you'll definitely be able to learn about the shooting in motion drill is the upcoming outdoor channel television program, The Best Defense. 
Starting in early January 2009, myself and Mike Janich will be co-hosting and instructing on this new program, which is put together by Michael Bain of the Shooting Gallery and Cowboys television programs that have been incredibly successful on the Outdoor Channel. All right. Now, somewhere between my mumbling, Moss, and Rob, you pulled out something from that, all right? Nobody has all the answers. What works is what works. Remember that. The Minister of Defense, the pastor of paladins, patriots, and pistoleros will be right back after these commercials. Hey, looking at some Kydex holsters? Or how about something really cool for your, t- for your tactical light? Or a way to carry more than one magazine at a time? Check out some brilliant new designs at Garrett Industries. You'll find it at GI Mag Clip. Dot com. Fellow Urban Shooter listener, Rod Garrett, has some hybrids of leather and Kydex that I use myself. Check it out at GIMagClip.com. My prices are low, and I work with great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Hey, let me ask you a question. Have you purchased your Zombie 2.5 targets yet? Why order a Zombie target? When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you support the Urban Shooter Podcast. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you help raise money for a minivan for the little church, Ken Pastors, in D.C. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you sharpen your skill. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you get an autographed copy. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you get to participate in the weekly internet match. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you can get your target analyzed online by professional firearms instructors. When you order a Zombie 2.5 Target, you can show off your skills on the Urban Shooters forums on the Gun Rights Radio Network. Each target costs $2 and you can get them on blackmanwithagun.com, urbanshooterpodcast.com, and wherever cool places are. Have you purchased your Zombie 2.5 Target yet? Crossbreed holsters. Have you seen the latest ads in the American Handgunner magazine, the American Rifleman, or any other quality magazine about crossbreed holster products? Make sure you order something for yourself and someone you like from Crossbreed Holsters, makers of good quality, affordable, and American-made leather products. Crossbreed Holsters. Hey, are you looking for a gunsmith? Well, I got one for you. Check out BudsGunsmith.com. That's Buds with two Ds. B-U-D-D-S. Gunsmith.com. Now, Bud is old school. Does the blacksmithing thing. Can fix your antique and cherished heirlooms. Check him out at BudsGunsmith.com. And now, back to the man who's packing more than a browning. (laughs) All right, why am I using Christmas music? Well, actually, that was an older recording. 
I actually have two more targets for the zombie set. There's the Gory the Groom, my personal favorite, and there's also um, a modern version of Zombie 2.5. It's 3.0 now, and I actually have uh, a Bride Zombie. I discontinued her because nobody really bought her. But if you want me to resurrect the beast, I shall bring her back. You know Halloween is coming. And it's a good time to break out the zombie targets at the range. Hey, let's continue with Zombie Strike, just in case you've missed it. This is Zombie Strike. Enemy Temple, Central Jungle of Target Island, 200 miles west of Hawaii, 1900 hours local, 26 July 2009. Countdown, 2 years, 5 months, 5 days. The light from the team's chem lights was overshadowed by an angry red light that illuminated the tunnel. The sloping switchbacks the tunnel took meant they were burrowing deep underneath the pyramid. Colin was in front of Dr. Castilla, about 30 feet behind the pair. The Steve was creeping along with his M4 up and hunting for targets in the shadows. Mateo was another 30 feet behind the Steve. He knew that he should be paying attention for threats, but his thoughts kept going back to the woman holding down the rear guard. When Mateo checked on Sissy after the four returned from Quentin's aborted execution, she was shaking uncontrollably. Mateo was about to call for the Steve, but Sissy grabbed his hands. Her blue eyes were alight with terror. Relax, Sissy. Everything's going to be all right, Mateo said quietly, trying to get his hands free. Sissy shook her head and pulled Mateo close. No, you don't understand, Sissy said in a hoarse whisper. I'm not like the rest of you. I thought I could hide it. I thought I could just push it down and do my job. Sissy choked back a sob. But I can't. I can't face the fear anymore. Mateo was at a loss for words. There was something desperate in Sissy's pleas. Instinctively, he hugged Sissy close and rocked her like he had done for his daughter a lifetime ago. The others politely ignored the two. Sissy, Mateo said quietly, I need you to push it down once more. I need you to fight just a little more. We're almost done. She nodded slowly. Her hand reached into a pocket and pulled out one of Jack's pearl-gripped stainless browning high powers. She thrust the weapon into Mateo's hands. You keep this, Sissy said with a pleading voice. I've got the other. Jack will keep us both safe. Mateo just nodded and tucked the pistol into the small of his back. If keeping the pistol as some sort of talisman would keep or get Sissy back into the game, then Mateo would do it. He needed every shooter he could get. Mateo motioned to Steve to finish managing up Sissy. Sissy couldn't handle her rifle. The Gala managed to break her left arm with the club strike. She could one hand the diminutive MP7. Mateo ordered her to stay next to Quentin. The big man acted like a protective big brother. He wouldn't let anything get close to Sissy. Still, Mateo was second-guessing his decision. Something about the terror he saw in those blue eyes. Something that said he had made the wrong decision. The tunnel narrowed down to a door-sized opening. The red light poured out of the opening. An indistinct male voice emanated from the door. Dr. Di Castilla whispered in urgent Spanish to Mateo as the group formed up outside the door. 
Mateo nodded and fired back with chopped Spanish. Dr. De Castilla nodded and ran back the way the team had come. All right, team, this is it, Mateo said. Zypazan is in that room with a bunch of golems. The golems are bound to Zypazan. Kill him and they stop according to the doc. There may be some hostages, so we have to do this carefully. Would you stop whispering at my door and just come in, hunters? Boomed the male voice. Come in nicely, or I'm going to have to finish off the hostages. Mateo scowled. He motioned for Colin to enter. Mateo followed Colin into the room. The temple room was huge. It was at least a hundred feet on a side. In the middle of the room was a ten-foot-wide trench. From where the team stood, Mateo could see the tops of sharpened spikes sticking up in the trench. Three evenly spaced arched bridges spanned the trench. The temple room was completely lined with glittering tiles. Mateo could tell from the color because the airy red light bathed the room. He couldn't tell where the light was coming from. It was almost as if the room just emanated from the walls. Zypazen was on the other side of the trench. He was standing on a raised platform. Next to him was a stone altar that was easily the size of a large dining table. Zypazen was taller than Quentin, but whipcord thin, where Quentin was the wall of human muscle. The cultist had his long, dark hair tied back and was wearing what looked like a leather cape. He casually held a glistening whip in his hands. There was an amusing smile on his Native American features. Surrounding the platform were six golems. Something was wrong. Where are the hostages, Colin demanded. I was lying about that, Zypazen said. His voice held just a faint hint of a Spanish accent. I just didn't want you coming into my beautiful temple with guns blazing. There was something boastful in his voice. Mateo made a quick mental decision. It looks more like a bad movie set, Mateo said nonchalantly. Trying to provoke me? How amusing, Zypazen said. Exactly who do you think you are? Big damn heroes, the Steve yelled. Zypazen stared at the medic with consternation. It was the opportunity Mateo needed. Simultaneously, Mateo and Colin brought their weapons up and fired. Zypazen bellowed in rage as the bullets slapped harmlessly against his exposed skin. The deformed bullets clinked as they fell on the tile floor. Fools, I am Zypazen, he yelled at the team. I am the favorite son of the flailed one. He has given me his blessings. I can raise his blessed warriors. I cannot be harmed by weapons of any living person. I will harvest your blood and bring the flail one into this world. He will save us from the coming apocalypse. Zypazen cracked the whip. The six golems stood up straight. Seize them. The golems ignored the bridges and simply leaped across the trench. Mateo snapped his weapon up as the golem bore down on him. The M4 spat out a long burst. The force of the rounds drove the leaping golem to the ground. As it stood, Mateo emptied the magazine into the golem's torso. The golem staggered and then fell back into the trench. That one should be out of the fight for a bit. Mateo was slapping another magazine into his weapon when Sissy screamed. Time seemed to slow as Mateo whipped his head to the screen. A golem was in close with Sissy. She was trying to bring up her MP7. She wasn't going to make it. The golem easily knocked the weapon aside, just as Sissy pulled the trigger. The MP7 let loose a stream of bullets straight through Quentin's right leg. Mateo watched in horror 
as the big man collapsed. Two golems leaped on Quentin's back to ride him down as he fell to the tiled floor. Mateo started running to his teammates as the golem in front of Sissy knocked her to the ground with a savage blow. Mateo stopped for a brief second to place a burst into the golems looming over Sissy. The creature snarled at Mateo over its shoulder before grabbing Sissy by her web gear and leaping over its brethren, attacking the rest of the team. It landed on one of the bridges, right where Mateo was aiming. Mateo hammered the golem with five quick shots, the last finally shattering the stone talisman. The golem realized its sudden vulnerability and leaped into the trench. Mateo ran through the melee behind Colin and the Steve and the other four golems. Mateo slid next to the woman who had so befuddled him on this mission. She looked so helpless. She didn't even look at him as he cradled her in his arms. She just stared glassy-eyed in the distance. Mateo looked back at the team. Colin was down to his pistol, and it looked like one of the golems managed to break his other arm. The Steve was hunched in pain, but dispatched a golem that managed to fall to the pair's teamwork. The last two golems were cautiously approaching Mateo and Sissy. Quentin wasn't moving. For all Mateo knew, the friendly giant was dead, just like Jack. The sudden thought hit Mateo with the force of a hammer. It couldn't be that simple. Mateo looked at Zypazin. He was watching Colin and the Steve fight it out. He turned to face Mateo. His smile was smug. He knew that the team wouldn't be able to stop him. Mateo reached back to where he had tucked away Jack's pistol. No weapon of a living person. What about the weapon of a dead person? Mateo racked the slide and felt the slivery weapon chamber around. At this point, Mateo's options were limited. Zybazen gave Mateo a condescending look as the team leader leveled a pistol at him in a classic weaver stance. Zypazen was still smiling smugly as the double tapped ripped out his heart. There was no chance for the cultists to question how the mere mortals slew him. No chance for him to realize the Achilles heel of his god's blessing. The shot was perfect and instantly lethal. Zypazen toppled off of his platform to the sudden screams of his golems. The scream cut off as the golems dissolved back to their skeletons. The temple echoed with a sudden silence. A tiny whimper dragged Mateo's gaze away from the Zypazen's body. He took Jack's pistol back into the small of his back as he knelt back to Sissy. She was curled in a tight ball, rocking herself and letting out small, unintelligible sounds. Mateo wrapped his arms around the woman who had once intimidated him. Don't worry, he whispered into her ear. It's going to be all right. This is Zombie Strike. Hi, Urban Shooter listeners and lovers. Visit the new UrbanShooterPodcast.com. There's a new email contact, and you can read past and new show notes for each episode, comment directly online, check out the wiki, the zombie page, and all the cool stuff on UrbanShooterPodcast.com. All right. Thanks, D. You know, Halloween is on the way, and that's one of my favorite non-religious, non real holidays because of the parties. I remember when I was living in England, man, we used to have some serious, what the Brits called fancy dress balls back then. You know, you wear costumes and act a fool. And sometimes people would tell on themselves by the stuff they wore. You have some lady who had some secret desire to be a floozy. She was wearing that thing. I remember my fiance back at the time was a raven haired beauty of Lebanese and Brazilian ancestry. 
Man, she was bad to the bone. She was drop-dead gorgeous, but just not quite right for the KID. She came to the party dressed like a witch. That kind of told me something right there. A witchy woman. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
did you think of the Urban Shooter podcast? Leave a review for Ken on iTunes at the end of this show. I want to save my little piece about the church until the next episode. Don't forget to make plans to come to Washington, D.C. for the Second Amendment March in 2010. Check out the latest and subscribe to the newsletter at thesecondamendmentmarch.com. Two of my friends are now on the list for speakers, Dr. Susanna Grasher-Hop from Texas and Sheriff Mack. Now, I still want you to come out to my church that Sunday before the march, too. Hopefully, you won't be the only white people in the building by then since I'm trying to get my church to be more inclusive, more spiritual, and more like a New Testament church should be. No hype, no crap, just real worship, true biblical teaching, and real outreach. More later, I promise. But you're asking yourself, he said white people, didn't he? Yeah, I did. Not everybody listens is the same color, I know that. But I know you're thinking it, so I might as well have said it, right? If there's an issue, send your brother a note. I'll stand corrected if I offended you. You know I love you. You too. Black, white, brown, pink, yellow, green. We're all urban shooters up in this camp. It's all about us. U.S. Urban Shooters. You know what? I'm going to call this thing quit. I've been going on long, long, long. Thanks for letting me share all this with you and consider joining the Urban Shooter Association. We are going somewhere. And this is bigger than a podcast. Special thanks again to Moss and Rob. Also, shout out to Gail and Eric, Mick, and Daniel, fellow podcasters that I have enjoyed this week. Also, Alex, the man Haddox of Personal Defense. The dude is tops. And Eric, I was listening to the Handgun Podcast, and Eric Shelton of Handgun Podcast made a pretty bold statement about the gun owners of America. And, uh, I just want to recognize the brother for having cojones. And uh, I appreciate that. Good call, Doug. Good call. Sometimes, you just got to call it like you see it. And if it's right, the truth is such a fit. Now, Eric made me reconsider some stuff, and I like that. Sometimes, you got to adjust your package. You know, items may have shifted during flight. All right, don't forget, Halloween is coming. Just a quick question, it's kind of stupid, but what weapons would you use to fight some of Hollywood's favorite monsters? Check out the poll on UrbanShooterPodcast.com and send in your thoughts. Now, the show is on Twitter at UrbanShooterPod, and I'm on Ken Blanchard. And that same thing, Ken with two N's. I think that's going to be it for this week. You and I probably forgot something. But if I did, there's always next week's show. Tell somebody about the Urban Shooter Podcast, and if you didn't like something, tell me so I can try to fix it. This is your friend and brother from a different mother wishing you safety from all those things that can go bump in the night. Until next week, Shalom, baby. The music heard in the beginning was from Tyrone Shoes and his Funky Blues, and the title track was called Funkin' A, and the other song was from Psycho Soul on podsafemusic.com, and that tune is called...